It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's August 13th, a Thursday of all kinds of days. <laughs> Yesterday was a day of technical problems and pain. Ah. Oh. Has anyone ever noticed that there's nothing worse than computer problems? I'm thinking I would rather have a root canal without anesthesia. <sighs> Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, if what they're saying is really from God, um, then it really should jive with the Word of God. If it ain't jiving with the Word of God, then, uh, <clears throat> as they say on I Love Lucy, as Ricky would say, uh, then you got some splaining to do. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're all about. We're all about uh, just doing some of that comparative work. Why? Well, Jesus, when asked about the last days and his return, um, he, right off the bat, he says, make sure that no one deceives you. Yeah, yeah that's uh, <clears throat> that's kind of the big issue right now in the church is there's a whole lot of deception going on. People claiming all kinds of things, uh, claiming that it's Christianity, claiming that it's okay for a Christian to believe something that's contrary or completely absent from God's Word. Now, not a very safe proposition whatsoever. That falls under the category of, uh, well, deception. So, and I have to warn you ahead of time, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor isn't giving you the goods. What are the goods? Well, it's preaching Christ and Him crucified for your sins from, believe it or not, every passage of Scripture. Yes, it can be done, because that's really at the center of, of Scripture. Scripture is about the story of what God has done to radically... Uh, get involved, if you would, <laughs> and it goes beyond involvement, of what God has radically done to save us, a fallen and sinful race that was created in his image. God isn't sitting upstairs in heaven with his hands ringing and you know tied together saying, oh, I can't do anything for those poor people. I wish I could do something, but they got to choose me. Or what? No, 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 no. No, the message of the gospel is this fantastic, amazing news of this very, very active, proactive, and powerful God who has defeated sin, death, and the devil for you. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I, I, I've heard some of this before back when I became a Christian. Why do you? Why are you going back to the beginning stuff? That's just baby stuff. No, 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 no. The gospel ain't baby stuff, not by any stretch of the imagination. The gospel really is the heart and center of Christianity, and it is not the beginning of the Christian journey. Every other doctrine in Christian theology hinges on and flows from the doctrine that Christ Jesus, God in human flesh, died for your sins. 
Now, <clears throat> I got to tell you this. I, <sighs> at the request of some of you listeners, okay, somebody sent me Phyllis Tickles, uh, like a study guide to her book, The Great Emergence. And, uh, and which inspired me after perusing that particular document, it inspired me to, uh, do the painful thing. And that would be to actually read the book. Now, those of you who know, uh, I will let you in on a secret. Um, the, one of the ways I'm able to read books is I am a huge fan of a, uh, of a service on the internet called audible.com. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E audible.com. And uh, I, I, for years now, I've I've had a subscription whereby I can get a couple of unabridged books uh, a month, and I, I, you know, I use that as the primary way for me to keep up with books. And so, um, you know, I went to Audible, used my subscription to download the unabridged copy of Phyllis Tickle's book, and uh, and have been listening to her book while doing my daily exercise. <sighs> Oh man! But the good news is, well, let me just say this: it was a a very uh, it was educational, a little bit painful to go through, but there's some there's some fruit that's been born as a result of uh, enduring uh, listening to that book of hers, and that is is that I think I man, you know, each each time I go around the track with the emergent guys. It gets clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer as to what these folks really are. And, um, you know, my first encounter with the emergence, I was sitting there scratching my head going, what is this we're dealing with? And the reason why I said that is because, um, you know, as an apologist, I, you know, one of the things I was trained to deal with was people who are relativists. Well, the emergents aren't relativists. There's something akin to that, but they're not relativists. And understanding their epistemology, and if you, that's basically epistemology, is just a big fancy uh, ten dollar uh, philosophical word that means how do you know what you know what you know? Okay. Um, when looking at you know, when you really get to, into a emergent epistemology, um, you know there's it's something akin to relativism, but it's really not. Uh, the one thing I could, I, you, uh, anybody who's run into folks who are emergent. Now I got to be careful here, because there's there's a couple of different camps um, of people who are dissatisfied with the church. There are the emergents, and into that bucket, the emergent bucket, goes men like Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, uh, Peter Rollins, Shane Hips. Uh, Rob Bell, okay? Those would be the guys that go into the bigger emergent bucket. Uh, Phyllis Tickle definitely goes into that bucket too. Then you've got a completely different group of people. And these are basically what I would consider uh, evangelicals who uh, have some very valid concerns about uh, the direction that the church is heading and uh, they've they've gone under the title of emerging, and more and more they've had to abandon that title because there's been confusion. Um, you know, the people basically, oh, you're emerging. That means you're in the same camp as Tony Jones and and Brian McLaren, and so they've shied away from uh, the emerging title and don't use it anymore. I think somebody uh, like Dan Kimball would fall into that category. 
Dan Kimball is not uh, a Rob Bell. Dan Kimball is not a Phyllis Tickle or a Tony Jones, um, anything of the sort. So that being the case, um, you know, when, when I'm talking about emergence, you know, I'm talking about McLaren. I'm talking about Tony Jones, Doug Paget, those guys. And it's a very uh, interesting um, direction that they're heading. And trying to wrap your head around it could cause you to get a brain ache. Uh, not a headache. A headache you can actually get rid of uh, with something simple like, you know, Advil. Uh, whereas a brain ache, oh, man, those those are whole <laughs> – it might take months to heal after doing – you know, after experiencing a brain ache. Well, the nice thing is is that, you know, knowledge builds on knowledge builds on knowledge builds on knowledge. And um, Bob DeWay in his latest book does a fine job of demonstrating the fact that these guys are highly dependent upon – uh, Hegelian uh, concepts, Hegelian philosophy. So after reading, uh, well, listening to uh, Phyllis Tickle's book yesterday, I got on the phone with Rod Rosenblatt, and uh, Rod Rosenblatt put me in touch with a, a, a professor of philosophy over at Ohio University, uh, Dr. Labar, and uh, and we exchanged emails and you know basically discussing you know the things I've been looking at and discovering in this. Uh, Thing and Labar gave me just this amazingly insightful thing. What I was really looking for uh, was if you know anything about philosophy, is that philosophy, uh, you know, there's different schools of thought in philosophy. And classically, what happens is is that uh, one generation of philosophers, uh, as a way of thanking the uh, philosophers who trained them, uh, overturned the philosophy that immediately preceded them. So they they overturned the philosophy of their professors. And so there's this wonderful tradition in philosophy of one generation rebutting and rigorously defeating the philosophy that <laughs> immediately preceded them. Not so with Hegelianism. That you know, as I was doing, I've been doing some research on uh, uh, on Hegelianism, and, and Hege, he, understand this: Hegel is um, he's very much an inspiration on Karl Marx. Marxism is very Hegelian, and Hegelianism is very utopian. Uh, this idea that if we just get the right get the right combination of particular uh, cultural influences, education, and other things that uh, we can change the world, make the world a better place, and uh, experience heaven on earth, if you would, uh, utopian society. Uh, and as we all know, Marxism uh, fell far short of that particular uh, in uh, vision for the future. But uh, anyway, going back to what my point was, is that when I was looking at the at the philosophers, what I noticed what was mysteriously missing was a school of thought that had uh, rigorously rebutted and gotten rid of Hegelianism. And then when you kind of look at the ti- the the timeline, it it begins to make sense. What happens is is that you have the Hegelian school of thought. This is continental uh, European German philosophy. And uh, what happens is is that uh, that you those utopian ideas that uh, that were moving towards the, some great end those all get blown to bits by World War One. So World War One defeated Hegelianism, not a philosophical school. And what arises from the rubble is existentialism, which basically is philosophy that needs Paxil because it's manic depressive. Uh, how, how's that existential concept go? The, the reason why you're miserable today is because you didn't commit suicide yesterday. 
Yeah, that's just uh, just a fun way of looking at the world. Anyway, so I in my email exchange with Dr. Labar, um, he pointed out the fact that Hegelianism really can't be defeated. It can't be rebutted or overturned. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. And his reasoning was is that Hegelianism isn't really a philosophy per se. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a synthetic reality. And it's like, all of a sudden, the light went on. It's like, ding, okay, all right, now I get it. <laughs> you can't attack it using axioms and propositional truth claims and things like that. And if it, one of the things in, in reading all of the different emergent writers is, is that they don't try to indoctrinate people to a particular set of propositional beliefs. No, no, no. In fact, they actually argue against that. That, in their mind, is modernism. Instead, what they try to use is narrative and framing stories in order to get you, convince you to defect from a particular way of seeing the world uh, to a different way of seeing the world. That is their way. Okay, And what they've done is they've created a synthetic and artificial reality. And in their synthetic and artificial reality, what happens is is that um, the logical law of non-contradiction doesn't rule at all, okay? Instead, they call it embracing paradox, but really it's not. The, the paradoxes are different. Uh, it, so what happens is is that in a Hegelian way of thinking, Hegel basically pointing out that human history moves forward through a process known as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Okay, uh, So what happens is in this Hegelian way of looking, there's no such thing as a real reality. There's only a, a series of synthetic realities. And supposedly we're moving towards and, and progressing towards a reality that's supposed to ultimately be the utopian heaven on earth thing. So uh, right now, the synthetic, you know, the, the, so what happens is in the postmodern way of looking at things is they consider modernism to be a synthetic reality. Okay. And um, it modernism has stratified into thesis and antithesis. And we'll give you an example in Christianity. And so uh, in, in in Christianity, you have the modernist liberals who are saying that miracles are not possible and that Jesus Christ probably – we probably know nothing about the historical Jesus at all. And you, know, and you can't trust the, the biblical texts to give us any information. Whereas the fundamentalists who react against this – uh, what happens is, is they they react against modernism and basically say, listen, you know, there's five fundamentals. You, you know, if you're a Christian, you gotta you gotta hang on to these things: uh, the literal virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture, Christ's, uh, you know, not only was he historical, but that he was God in human flesh, um, you know, personal salvation, things like that. And so what happens is you, uh, you have the modernist liberals who are your thesis. You have the uh, much despised fundamentalists who are the antithesis and so what happens is is that the postmoderns come along and they 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 think that they're moving humanity forward then by finding a synthesis between those two positions and in their way of thinking in this artificial reality reality that they've set up they would think that modernists 
liberals are Christians, and uh, fundamentalists are Christians as well, although not as well-liked. Uh, they're country bumpkins, according to the way they think. And so what happens is they basically say, listen, you're both Christians, and now what we're going to do is we're going to synthesize the two positions. And they, and that's why you have uh, the emergence drawing on both conservative and liberal elements and trying to synthesize them into something different. And that thing that's emerging is actually a synthetic reality. It's not a real reality. It's a synthetic world. It doesn't really exist, and it isn't real really reality and um you know in the real world when you're driving down the street and you look at a stoplight and the stoplight is green you know that you can use the intersection and you're not going to get hit by a uh, uh somebody on the cross traffic unless they lose control or not paying attention okay uh, you know, and if the red light is red, then you can't go into the intersection. It's real simple. Law of non-contradiction is, you know, it, you know, basically, you, 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 the light cannot both be green and red at the same time. That's and yellow is not some synthetic position between the two. That just means uh, stop or hurry along because you're losing you're losing access to the uh, to the intersection. So what happens is is that in the real world we deal with real logical. Uh, categories that you know that the that the moon is not made out of green cheese and made out of rock that doesn't work that way in my checking account i cannot have both a negative balance and a million dollars in there it just doesn't work that way uh and the uh the the way this plays out is is that the shorthand for it is a equals a or you can put it in the negative that a does not equal non-a okay in the emergent postmodern synthetic reality that they've established okay they don't work with a equals a instead they work with the uh the 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 logical shorthand of x squared equals four and you're going okay and so the question is what is x well x is obviously two but X could also be negative 2. And so because X can be 2 and negative 2, that somehow justifies them embracing these opposite and contradictory concepts and holding on to an epistemology that they, they would say liberals who deny the historicity of Jesus Christ, uh, deny the scriptures, um, deny miracles, those are Christians, and uh, fundamentalists are also Christians too because x squared equals 4. The thing is, the problem is, is that, yeah, x squared equals 4 might be true, but x will never be 3, nor will x ever be 97. So even their way of thinking, it has some serious problems to it. So the, you can't defeat emergent thinking using propositions and axioms. Instead, you pretty much have to uh, take a look at the world that's created, the picture that's created by this artificial reality that they've created, and point out some of the glaring problems with the uh, this artificial reality because there are many of them. So you don't fight it with axioms. Instead, you fight it by uh, painting pictures. Kind of sounds silly, though, but it's like... Uh, just this little concept has got me going, ah, okay, there's, there's a lot of potential here. So uh, things I'm working on, I just I had to share those with you. So um, 
<laughs> All that is monologue for today. Uh, funny enough, I actually do have uh, other topics to discuss on today's program, and and I pick stuff that's kind of related to uh, uh, the things that are on my mind here. So I hope that makes sense. Um, so the reason why you struggle with, if you're having a hard time understanding the emergent guys, oh, d- don't. The reason why you're struggling with it is because you're trying to use the way we normally deal with the world where there's a such thing as truth and error uh, uh, and contradiction and, uh, and and trying to basically say, I don't understand your world because all those categories are wrong. And the reason why those all those categories are wrong is because they've created a synthetic and artificial reality. They've, in, in a sense, created the matrix for themselves. And they exist in that. And so what happens is, is they've created an entirely new way of seeing the world that uh, has completely lost touch with real reality. And people seem to think that they can do that because um, uh, you know, because they're dealing with spiritual things. But it doesn't work that way with spiritual things, nor does it work that way in the real world. In the real world, when you jump off a cliff, the law of gravity kicks in, and it's just a matter of time before your uh, body hits terminal velocity about 120 miles per hour, and then the ground hits you. And, you know, it comes up real quick. But just, you know, in, in, if, <laughs> in their world, their synthetic world, uh, you know, gravity may not apply. You just don't know. But the problem is, is that that's not reality. Reality and truth are those things that correspond to that, the way things actually are. So, anyway, th- thoughts on it. And oh, and by the way, in Phyllis Tickle's book, I remember I've been saying that uh, the religion of works is always firmly grounded in subjectivity. Oh, this is like becoming a cardinal rule. The more I, uh, the more I read up on these things, Phyllis Tickle in her, her book. Oh man, she has. It's a full-out frontal attack against the concept of sola scriptura that the Bible alone is, you know, is our authority. And, um, and what happens? <laughs> what happens is, is she attacks and tries to deconstruct sola scriptura as you know some untenable position, and then turns around and tries to answer, well, what's the authority then for the emergence uh, for the emergence movement uh, for this emerging thing that's coming on? And her answer: it, it's the immediate working of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> So it, she, there's a sentence in there. I've got to find it when I go back through uh, my notes. And where she says in the book, she says that uh, that the immediate working, the immediate experience of the working of the Holy Spirit has more authority uh, than uh, some dry, dusty words put in an old ancient book that may or may not be relevant. I mean, that's that's the gist of it. And I'm thinking, ah, there we go again, pure subjectivity. And that being the case, um, my question for Phyllis is, well, how do you know you're not in error? But see, that's the, see that that category doesn't exist in their synthetic reality, because in their synthetic reality, God, the Holy Spirit, can work in every and all religions. And she even goes on to say in her book that she considers that it's, it's, she considers that uh, Mormonism may arguably be considered the fourth faith of Abraham. I kid you not. <laughs> I kid you not. Oh, it's just so entertaining. All right. <sighs> anyway, I just had to share all that with you. I just, you know, I'm excited about this stuff. All right. Believe it or not, we do have a program and some things I like to talk about. Um, I've got, I want to read a couple of things from the uh, Christian Post. The first is uh, from Greg Laurie, who is uh, one of those uh, Harvest Crusade e- uh, e- evangelists. 
In fact, I think he's in the head of the whole Harvest Crusade thing. And he's got a, he's got a little tiny op-ed in the uh, Christian Post when it, talking about when relevance becomes dangerous. I'm going to read that. And then uh, John MacArthur has a new book out, and so the, he's getting some uh, ink in the uh, Christian Post. And there's an article called Evangelicals Challenge to Preach Bold and Hard Truths. And then Al Mohler has a great op-ed piece t- uh, discussing the culture of offendedness. I've, I've mentioned, you know, without Al Mohler, you know, this is one of the things I've talked about. It, in today's society, um, one of the worst things you can do is offend somebody. I mean, you know, it's, it's as if people, you know, there's some kind of unwritten right that people have to not being offended. Um, this is where political correctness has taken us, and so I'm going to read Al Mohler's piece on that. We're going to continue working through the book of Acts. We're up to uh, Acts chapter 23 today, and then our sermon <laughs> review. Oh, man. Um, the, 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 this is called The Door of Failure, and it's a, a sermon done by a guy by the name of Pastor Jim Carpenter from Compass Church in Athens, Georgia. And this guy, I kid you not, he sounds like... Um, uh, he missed his calling. He should have been a beach bum and a surfer dude. It's um, <sighs> anyway. So it, this will be all kinds of an in- interesting stuff. So twenty five minutes into the program, and I'm, I'm we're just done doing the intro. But uh, make yourself comfortable. We've got some plenty of good stuff uh, coming up anyway. So I just want to share that with you. Uh, so moving on to our uh, op ed here. Uh, the headline reads, When Relevance Becomes Dangerous. This is an op-ed piece written by Greg Laurie for the Christian Post. Short one, but to the point. And, uh, you know, I don't normally find myself, you know, in a lot of agreement with Greg Laurie. But this particular time, I think what he's saying is absolutely true and worth passing along. And he, uh, he quotes John fourteen six, which uh, says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Greg is picking up on something. That, quoting that verse, he's taking a shot across the bow of the emergence. Why? Because one of the things the emergence do not, in their synthetic reality, affirm is the exclusivity of uh, of salvation in Christ alone. It's the doctrine known as Solus Christus. And, uh, in fact, Phyllis Tickle in her book uh, attempts to deconstruct that little concept, and as a result of it uh, opens the door to this possibility that God's working in all religions. Yeah, that's what happens in their synthetic reality. In the, uh, in the emergent matrix... Uh, that's the things that uh, one of the things that they you know they believe. So anyway, uh, uh, Greg Laurie is reacting to that. He says, "I've been preaching for a fairly long time now, and I've seen a number of generations come and go: the Boomers, the Busters, uh, the generations X, Y, and Z. I'm a Gen X, by the way. And uh, one thing that has not changed over the years is my emphasis on the teaching of the Bible and the preaching of the gospel." That can never change, and it never will. It must never change, because I know the gospel is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. That's Romans one sixteen, And I have experienced the impact of it in my own life. But the gospel is under attack like never before. Yes, it is, and thanks for coming to the, uh, uh, to joining the, uh, the battle here. He says, while the church has always had its disagreements, this is a life-and-death debate. 
He's right. It's a debate among a growing number of people who call themselves evangelical as to whether or not Jesus Christ really is the only way to salvation, whether all the scripture is indeed inspired by God. Mm-hmm. He says, there's a movement afoot known as the emergent church that is gaining momentum today. It is especially popular among people who have been raised in the evangelical church and who want to, quote, be real, who want something that is authentic, just as my generation did. But being real is not the most important thing. Being right with God is the most important thing. And sometimes in the quest of being real and authentic, some of these people are buying into dangerous ideas. Yes, they are, Greg. He says, let's get our priorities straight and let's get back to the message again. Otherwise, we'll lose what little influence we have at the as the church today. I'm all for being contemporary, and I'm all for being relevant, but at the same time, we must be truthful, we must be accurate, and most importantly, we must be biblical. <clears throat> now, this short little uh, op-ed piece, I, I completely agree with Greg Laurie here. However, the emergence and postmoderns who would see this would basically say, oh, he's just being modern. See, he's beholden to the modern mindset. We've moved beyond that. We're now, we, we've, we have a postmodern way of viewing things. We've created a synthetic reality, a synthetic way of looking at the world. And in, in our way of looking at the world, the category of being right and faithful and truthful and accurate, those are modern categories. We don't want them in our world. So... Anyway, I just had to share that. Okay, we're up on our first break here. And, uh, oh, wow. So when we get back, just kind of looking at here, we're going to talk about uh, MacArthur's new thing, uh, talk about the culture of offendedness, look at the book of Acts, and then hour number two, we'll get into our sermon review today, entitled The Door of Failure. Because, you know, Jesus came to earth in order to help you uh, <clears throat> get through the door of failure? <sighs> yeah, and... <laughs> Anyway, now if you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. <clears throat> talkback, sorry about that. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. 
Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We'll write out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity.
All right, we are back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could uh, be disruptive in your life. You might end up having to find a new church or uh, get a new girlfriend. Just saying. Anyway, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, that uh, your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith not only not only to you but to other people. And by supporting Fighting for the Faith, uh, you not only make it possible for you to continue receiving this program, but you also make it uh, possible for us to grow our audience and to reach other people with this message of discernment and, and comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God and the clear proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for your sins. And if you would like to partner with us, because that's really what happens when you uh, when you financially support us, you're partnering with us and uh, and working with us, uh, you know, to help us do what we do. And you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Yeah, that's right. We've made them friendly and yellow just to make it even that much better. And uh, that allows you to send in your, your gift instantly right there online. Or if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, John MacArthur has a, a new book coming out, and the Christian Post has done a, a couple of write-ups uh, on that, and uh, and we'll, I'm going to read one of them today, maybe the next one in the next day or so, but uh, that, that has yet to be decided. But the headline here reads, Evangelicals are challenged to preach bold, hard truths. Yeah, <laughs> this is really important. Now, it, 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 the uh, this was written. Is this Lillian who wrote this? Yeah, this is Lillian Kwan, Christian Post reporter. In a climate where dogmatism is the new heresy, many evangelicals have backed away from bold preaching while freely imbibing the spirit of the postmodern age. Says one well-known minister. That would be John MacArthur. Um, yeah, uh, that's right. He, MacArthur's right. Dogmatism, well, the, if you believe in Christian dogma, you believe in, in sound biblical doctrine, and that there's a such thing as heresy, a such thing as truth versus error in the, in the teachings of Christianity, and that there are core fundamental doctrines that if one denies or attacks that that puts them outside of Christianity? That's what he's referring to. You know, if, you, if you believe in that type of thing, that right now is the thing that's under attack, and those who follow the emergent postmodern way of thinking are calling you the heretic. <laughs> that's the fun part. Yeah, <laughs> You don't believe me? Go back and listen to what Catherine Jefford Shorey said. If you believe that you can be made individually right before God, that's a heresy. Anyway, we continue, quote, It seems that uh, zeal for the essential doctrines of biblical Christianity has become virtually as unacceptable among evangelicals and post-evangelicals as it always has been in the, in the world at large, says John MacArthur, uh, writes in his newly released book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore. The evangelical movement used to be known for two non-negotiable theological convictions, one of them being the absolute accuracy and authority of Scripture, and the other being Jesus Christ is the 
only way of salvation. But today, evangelicalism has become an amorphous, uh, an amorphous monstrosity where practically every idea is brought to the evangelical table for discussion, MacArthur says. Quote, as a result, today's evangelicals seem unable to put their finger on anything that makes them truly distinctive, he laments. Before writing his book, MacArthur, pastor of the non-denominational megachurch Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, read through literature representing post-evangelical points of view. What he found was a common theme in all the books that suggested Christians need to be less militant, less aggressive, less preachy, less sure of their own convictions in order to reach unbelieving people in a postmodern culture. And you know what's really sad? He's right. And the, the even sadder fact is that there's a whole bunch of people who, in their zeal for reaching people with the gospel, said, Okay, that makes sense to me. <clears throat> but that's not the way Jesus proclaimed the gospel message, MacArthur points out. A far, far cry from the methods employed by preachers today, Jesus preached with a bold, blunt, unvarnished directness that even his disciples had a hard time listening to the evangelical author highlights. He's right. Quote, his style of preaching isn't likely to generate the kind of enthusiastic, arm-waving, feel-good atmosphere of today's Christians typically like to see it at their mass meetings and outdoor music festivals, he states. The Jesus most people tend to be familiar with, however, is the meek and mild lamb whom many learned of as a child. Rather than go to the Bible to get the full picture of who Jesus is, people are very content with a benign, self-satisfying view of Jesus, MacArthur told the Christian Post. And churches are marketing a Jesus consumers would, would less likely resist. To sell him effectively, many churches are inventing, the Jesus, are inventing the Jesus and the gospel message people would like, MacArthur noted. MacArthur's right, by the way. In his new book, the longtime minister surveys the entire public ministry of Christ and reintroduces readers to Jesus, the Jesus who never shied away from conflict, never softened his message to please genteel taste, and never suppressed any truth to accommodate someone's artificial notion of dignity. MacArthur emphasizes that the one class of sinners Jesus consistently dealt with sternly were the professional hypocrites, the religious phonies, false teachers, and self-righteous peddlers of plastic piety. And the Pharisees were the main figures of public opposition to Jesus. They were the religious leaders in Israel, the experts of Scripture, and the most pious. At the same time, they were among the most hypocritical and self-righteous who preferred man-made religious traditions over the Word of God. Phariseeism is not, legalist, is not legalistic true Christianity, MacArthur stresses. Pharisees represent a false religion. Well, by today's postmodern standards, you can be both a Pharisee and a Christian, couldn't you? <clears throat> One modern form of Phariseeism is just the vast religious realm in which people believe that you earn your way to heaven by your own goodness, your own morality, your own religiosity, your own self-righteousness, he explained. Just as Jesus was no peacemonger when it came to hypocrisy and false teaching, defending the truth and distinguishing, distinguishing between sound doctrine and error should be one of the highest priorities for every Christian, the best-selling author maintains. Whether we like it or not, as Christians, we are in a life-or-death conflict against the forces of evil and their lies. It's spiritual war, he writes. 
Oh, how modern! And look at how look at that look at that male terminology. War is ugly. We we want to paint a picture. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> The spiritual conflict is first and foremost a theological one. Divine truth versus demonic error, he's right. He explains, the goal is the destruction of falsehood, not people. Many Christians today prefer conversation over conflict and common ground rather than contention. The postmodern culture has sucked the life and boldness out of the church, and Christians are content with being nice people, MacArthur notes. While the evangelical pastor admits it's better to be gentle than to be harsh, he stresses that avoiding conflicts is not always the right thing. When peaceful coexistence with our deepest differences become priority, uh, priority one, and conflict per se is demonized as inherently sub-Christian, any and every false religious belief can and will demand an equal voice in the conversation, he says. We cannot be men-pleasers and servants of Christ at the same time, MacArthur contends. The church, he says, needs to recapture its own courage and be faithful to follow the path that the Lord took. I agree. I am in complete agreement with what uh, Dr. MacArthur has stated there and what is absolutely true, which is the reason why fighting for the faith exists and we are unashamedly uh, warfare-minded, politically incorrect, and uh, male in our thinking, not female. Okay. Talking about this uh, kind of in a similar vein, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Albert Muller who is the uh, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He has a uh, interesting article in the, uh, uh, in the Christian post called the culture of offendedness. He he picks up, you know, in a similar vein with MacArthur, but I think he's talking about the overall culture here. Listen to this. A new and unprecedented right is now the central focus of legal procedural and cultural concern in many corridors, a supposed right to not be offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cultural momentum behind this pr- uh, purported right is growing fast, and the logic of this movement has taken hold in many universities, legal circles, and interest groups. I would add to that, Dr. Muller, uh, churches. The larger world received a rude introduction to the logic of offendedness when riots broke out in many European cities prompted by a Dutch newspaper's publishing of cartoons that reportedly mocked the Prophet Muhammad. The logic of the riots was that Muslims deserved nothing to be offended at, uh, offended by an insult, real, real or perceived, directed at their belief system. Unthinking Christians may fall into the same pattern of claiming offendedness whenever we face opposition to our faith or criticism of our beliefs. The risk of being offended is simply part of what it means to live in a diverse culture that honors and celebrates free speech. A right to free speech means a right to offend. Otherwise, the right would need no protection. These days, it is the secularist who seems to be the most intent on pushing a proposed right never to be offended by confrontation with the Christian gospel. Christian witness or Christian speech and symbolism, this motivation lies behind the incessant effort to remove any symbols, representations, references, and images related to Christianity from the public square. The very existence of a large cross placed on government property as a memorial outside of San Diego, California, has become a major issue in the courts and now in Congress. Those pressing for the removal of the cross claim that they are offended by the fact that they are forced to see this Christian symbol from time to time. 
Uh-huh. We should note carefully that this notion of offendedness is highly emotive in character. In other words, those who now claim to be offended are generally speaking of an emotional state that has resulted from some real or perceived insult to their belief system or from contact with someone else's belief system. In this sense, being offended does not necessarily involve any real harm. Uh, but points instead to the fact that the mere presence of such an argument, image, or symbol evokes an emotional response of offendedness. The distinguished Christian philosopher Paul Helm addresses this issue in an article published in the September 2006 edition of the Salisbury Review, published in Great Britain. As Professor Helm argues, historically being offended has been a very serious matter. To be offended is to be caused to stumble so as to fall, to fail to apostatize, to be brought down, to be crushed. As evidence for this claim, Professor Helm points to the language of the King James Bible in which Jesus says to his disciples, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Likewise, Jesus also speaks a warning against those who would offend the little ones. As Professor Helm summarizes, so to offend is, in this robust sense, is to be an agent of destruction. And to be offended is to be placed in desperate straits. The desperate straits are no longer required in order for an individual group to claim the emotional status of offendedness. This shift in the meaning of the word and its cultural usage is subtle but extremely significant. Offering a rather robust definition of this new usage, Professor Helm describes this new notion of offendedness as, quote, that one is offended when words and actions of another produce a feeling of hurt or shame or humiliation on account of what is said of oneself about one's deepest attachments. Professor Helm's definition is rather generous, offering more substantial content to this modern notion than may be present in the claims of many persons. Many persons who claim to be offended are speaking merely of the vaguest notion of emotional distaste at what another has said, done, proposed, or presented. This leads to inevitable conflict. People have always been upset by insensitivity and negligence, but the profile of offendedness understood in this modern sense is being immeasurably heightened, suggests Professor Helm. The right never to be offended, never to suffer feelings of hurt or shame, is being touted and promoted both by the media and by the government, and interest in it is being continually excited. Thus, claims to be hurt or shamed are noticed. They are likely to be rewarded. The very idea of civil society assumes that the very real possibility that individuals may at time be offended by another member of the community. Civilization thrives when individuals and groups seek to minimize unnecessary offendedness while recognizing that some degree of real or perceived offendedness is the cost the society must pay for the right to enjoy the free exchange of ideas and the freedom to speak one's mind. Professor Helm is surely right when he argues that the social value of offendedness is now increasing. All that is necessary for the claim to be taken seriously is for the claim to be offered. After all, if the essence of the offendedness is an emotional state or response, how can any individual deny that a uh, claimant has been genuinely offended? Professor Helm is right to worry that this will lead to the fracturing of society. 
quote, we all hear things we don't like said about people and causes that we are fond of, but in changed social atmosphere, we are being encouraged to give public notice if such language offends us. I am now being repeatedly told that I am entitled not to be offended. So from now on, not offended is what I intend to be. Does this heighten, heightening of sensitivity make for social cohesion? Does not such cohesion depend rather on enduring what we don't like and doing so in an adult way? Does not the glue of civic peace rest on such intangibles as the ability to laugh at oneself, to take a joke about even the deepest things? And is not a measure of this strength of a person's religion that they tolerate the unpleasant conversations of others? Isn't playing the offendedness card going to result in an, in an enfeebling of the culture, the development of an oversensitive and precarious members of the caring society, whatever happened to toleration? Given our mandate to share the gospel and to speak openly and publicly about Jesus Christ and the Christian faith, Christians must understand a particular responsibility to protect free speech and to resist this culture of offendedness that threatens to shut down all public discourse. This is the nub of this um, article, by the way. If we give in to this right to not be emotionally offended by something that somebody has said, what that does is it effectively works to undermine completely the ability to speak freely. Freedom of speech no longer exists if people have a right to not be emotionally upset about something you've said. Okay, we continue. Of course, the right for Christians to speak publicly about Jesus Christ necessarily means that adherents of other belief systems will be equally free to present their truth claims in an equally public manner. This is simply the cost of religious liberty. An interesting witness to this point is uh, Salman Rushdie, the novelist who was once put under a Muslim sentence of death, death because he had insulted Muslim sensibilities in his novel, The Satanic Verses. Mr. Rushdie presents an argument that Christians must take seriously. Quote, the idea that any kind of free society can be constructed in which people will never be offended or insulted is absurd. So, too, is the notion that people should have the right to call on the law to defend them against being offended or insulted. A fundamental decision needs to be made. Do we want to live in a free society or not? Democracy is not a tea party where people sit around making polite conversation. In democracies, people get extremely upset with each other. They argue vehemently against each other's positions, Rushdie insists. As the novelist continues, people have the fundamental right to take an argument to the point where somebody is offended by what they say. It is no trick to support the free speech of somebody you agree with or to those opinion, uh, opinion you are indifferent. The defense of free speech begins at the point where people say something you can't stand. If you can't defend their right to say it, then you don't believe in free speech. You only believe in free speech as long as it doesn't get up your nose. As the Apostle Paul made clear in writing to the Corinthians, the preaching of the gospel has always been considered offensive by those who reject it. When Paul spoke of the cross as foolishness and a stumbling block, he was pointing to this very reality, a reality that would lead to his own stoning, flogging, imprisonment, and execution. At the same time, Paul did not want to offend persons on the basis of anything other than the cross of Christ and the essence of the Christian gospel. For this reason, he would write to the Corinthians about becoming all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Without doubt, 
many Christians manage to be offensive for reasons other than the offense of the gospel. This is to our shame and to the injury of the gospel. Nevertheless, there is no way for a faithful Christian to avoid offending those who are offended by Jesus Christ and his cross. The truth claims of Christianity by their very particularity and exclusivity are inherently offensive to those who would demand some other gospel, like the emergence. Christians must not only contend for the preservation and protection of free speech, essential for the cause of the gospel, we must also make certain that we do not fall into the trap of claiming offendedness for ourselves. We must not claim a right to be offended, even as we must insist that there is no such right and that the social construction of such a right will mean the death of individual liberty, free speech, and the free exchange of ideas. Once we begin playing the game of offendedness, there is no end to the matter. There simply is no right to be offended, and we should be offended by the very notion that a right could exist. (laughs) Great article. All right, we're up on our uh, second break. When we come back, we're going to continue working through the book of Acts, and then we're going to get to our sermon review today from a guy. You know, I, I'm, I think I know who this guy is. Um, this, you remember the, uh, the, the movie Finding Nemo, that uh, Pixar movie Finding Nemo? Uh, the turtle, the, the dude said, dude, man, yeah, yeah. That, that guy, uh, that turtle, that character. I think uh, Pastor Jim Carpenter of Compass Church in Athens, Georgia, it's probably similar to that uh, turtle there. This is a purpose-driven, seeker-driven church. And, yeah, because, you know, we all know that uh, Jesus came to help us uh, overcome, you know, failure. <sighs> yeah, and, yeah, you can already tell I'm not all that excited about this sermon. <sighs> it's not a good one. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have to put up an emergency gospel sermon to go along with it. I got another great one from the Reverend Brandon Scott Jones. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, I'll put that up uh, with today's program so that uh, y'all can hear that. Now, if you would like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Faster, it be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel boarders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. (laughs) Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. 
That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And a lot of the points that um, Dr. MacArthur pointed out uh, are true of the disciples, not just of Jesus. And these guys were willing to hang it out there, to offend people, to preach the truth. And uh, what did it cost? What did it cost them? Well, uh, imprisonment, imprisonment, uh, martyrdom, stoning, uh, all kind. This, you know, being a Christian could get you in a lot of trouble. Proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins—that's how the church grew. Not by capitulating to the culture. Not by going out and making a seeker-sensitive service or to soften the hard edges and make the gospel more appealing and more palatable. There's no point in doing that because the gospel is an offense and it's foolishness. It is offense and foolishness to those who don't believe. So go in all of its go and do the silly thing. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ unashamedly. It's not your gospel. It's not my gospel. We don't get to pick the message. We don't get to clean it up. We don't get to do any of that. We don't even get to do any editing. We've been handed this thing. We've inherited it. We get to proclaim it and pass it along. Period. So... Now I bring all that up again. We've uh, we now have uh, in our story here. We're up to Acts chapter twenty three, and Paul nearly lost his life after you know his presence at the temple in Jerusalem uh, got noticed, uh, and uh, you know they just about killed him. He was rescued by the Romans and uh, arrested. Okay, and so we pick up the story. Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna read Acts chapter twenty two verse thirty, and then move on into Acts chapter twenty three. We read. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, that would be Paul, he unbounded him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me struck? Now those who stood by uh, said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope 
and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Sadducees sound a lot like liberals. When the great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' uh, party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now before, now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man uh, to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, uh, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, "'Tell no one that you have informed me of these things.'" Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with, charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him." So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to, the, to Antipatris, and on the next day returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, they asked what province he was from, and when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. 
All right. Now tomorrow we'll we'll pick up that uh, we'll pick up that story in Acts chapter twenty four. All right. So notice uh, preaching the real gospel. Um, the real gospel will get you in a lot of trouble. It can have that effect on people. So. Whereas the soft-pedaled, uh, offend-nobody uh, given to the uh, culture gospel, well, that gospel might be, quote, appealing. The problem is it's not the biblical gospel, and preaching that gospel saves nobody. <laughs> Just can't. It, it's impossible because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, we are now up to our sermon review time, and this is a little bit of a longer sermon, unfortunately, and uh, this is uh, Pastor Jim Carpenter of the Compass Church in Athens, Georgia. And the name of the uh, sermon is The Door of F- uh, Failure. Yeah, because, you know, Jesus, you know, is all about having you overcome failure. Um, <laughs> there's our sermon review music. Definitely, I think this one's not going to be good. Probably bad. Potentially ugly. Just, you know, hanging it out there. And there will be an emergency gospel sermon that goes out with this one. Another fine sermon by the Reverend Brandon Scott Jones. Hopefully will be just the medicine you'll need to... Just a thing to cure you of what ails you after hearing this one. Because uh, the door of failure sermon, I'm just hanging it out there right now. Strong possibility that this one will fail. Fail biblically, fail with sound doctrine, sound fail with the gospel, you know, all kinds of fails. Because remember, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. And to preach Christ and Him crucified from every passage of Scripture for you. Yep, believe it or not, that's the job. This uh, other thing, well... Mm. Alright, so let's kill the music. Thank you. So without any further ado, um, let me... Where did I put that? There it is. Um, here is uh, Pastor Jim Carpenter on the door of failure. All right, we're back. Hour number two, fighting for the faith straight ahead. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. And a lot of the points that um, Dr. MacArthur pointed out uh, are true of the disciples, not just of Jesus. And these guys were willing to hang it out there, to offend people, to preach the truth. And uh, what did it cost? What did it cost them? Well, uh, imprisonment, imprisonment, uh, martyrdom, stoning. Uh, all kind, this, you know, being a Christian he could get you in a lot of trouble. Proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins—that's how the church grew, not by capitulating to the culture, 
not by going out and making a seeker-sensitive service or to soften the hard edges and make the gospel more appealing and more palatable. There's no point in doing that because the gospel is an offense and it's foolishness. It is offense and foolishness to those who don't believe. So go in all of its go and do the silly thing. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ unashamedly. It's not your gospel. It's not my gospel. We don't get to pick the message. We don't get to clean it up. We don't get to do any of that. We don't even get to do any editing. We've been handed this thing. We've inherited it. We get to proclaim it and pass it along. Period. So now I bring all that up again. We've uh, we now have uh, in our story here. We're up to Acts chapter twenty three, and Paul nearly lost his life after you know his presence at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, got noticed, uh, and uh, you know they just about killed him. He was rescued by the Romans and uh, arrested. Okay, and so we pick up the story. Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna read Acts chapter twenty two verse thirty, and then move on into Acts chapter twenty three. We read. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, that would be Paul, he unbounded him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me struck? Now those who stood by uh, said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Sadducees sound a lot like liberals. When the great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' uh, party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now before, now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. 
Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man uh, to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, uh, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor to drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, "'Tell no one that you have informed me of these things.'" Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with, charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him." So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to, the, to Antipatris, and on the next day returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, they asked what province he was from, and when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. All right, now tomorrow we'll we'll pick up that uh, we'll pick up that story in Acts chapter twenty four. All right. So notice uh, preaching the real gospel. Um, the real gospel will get you in a lot of trouble. It can have that effect on people. So uh, whereas the soft pedaled uh, offend nobody uh, given to the uh, culture gospel, well that gospel might be quote, appealing. The problem is it's not the biblical gospel, and preaching that gospel saves nobody. Just can't. It's impossible, because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, we are now up to our sermon review time, and this is a little bit of a longer sermon, unfortunately. And uh, this is uh, Pastor Jim Carpenter of the Compass Church in Athens, Georgia, And the name of the uh, sermon is The Door of Failure. Yeah, because, you know, Jesus, you know, is all about having you overcome failure. Um, (laughs) There's our sermon review music. Definitely, I think this one's not going to be good. Probably bad. Potentially ugly. Just, you know, hanging it out there. 
And there will be an emergency gospel sermon that goes out with this one. Another fine sermon by the Reverend Brandon Scott Jones. The, hopefully will be just the medicine you'll need to... You, just a thing to cure you of what ails you after hearing this one. Because uh, the Door of Failure sermon... I'm just hanging it out there right now. A strong possibility that this one will fail. Fail biblically, fail with sound doctrine, sound fail with the gospel, you know, all kinds of fails. Because remember, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. And to preach Christ and Him crucified from every passage of Scripture for you. Yep, believe it or not, that's the job. This uh, other thing, well... Mm. All right, so let's kill the music. Thank you. So without any further ado, um, let me... Where did I put that? There it is. Um, here is uh, Pastor Jim Carpenter on the door of failure. I feel, like, I feel like Mr. Rogers walking through that door, man. How's everybody doing today? Look at somebody next to him and say, if you're not having a good day, you're going to have a good day in the next 30 minutes. I came ready to preach today. Are you guys ready to listen? I'm pretty fired up. So um, has this been an unbelievable service so far? I just thought Marcus just kind of brought it and the band brought it maybe in a different level today in our worship, man. I thought that was awesome. Great to see Chris and Felicity over here from our Oconee campus. They've been hanging out over there, man. We, ju- we just got we just got some unbelievable people here. Um, I've got a new keyboardist today, Pat. Say hi to Pat this morning. He's hanging out with us today, man. He's got the setup over there too, baby. He told me if I got going, he might play a little Hammond B3 for me. And so um, if you don't know what a Hammond B3 is, just kind of get ready. But um, I, I want to talk to you today about a topic in our series. I want to welcome everybody that is listening via one of our podcasts today. We're thankful that you're here. Those of you that are watching at our video service, um, especially our 1115 video service, we're glad that you're there. You've realized now that you don't need Jim in the house. You need Jesus, and Jesus is present with you. And here's what I want to talk to you about today. I want you to get your notes out. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We're going to hang out there and look at a story from the life of the Apostle Paul. But I want to talk to you about the door of failure. We're in week three of our series. We looked a couple weeks ago, as you've seen, about Thomas and just coming to an all-in moment with God. And then last week, we kind of set it up and we said that breaking through doors in our life begins with desire. Well, today I want us to take a look. I want us to be very specific about what God wants us to do in this particular door in our lives. And let me just start off by saying this. Many of the ideas, many of the innovations, many of the dreams, many of the changes that we have seen in our culture were failures. They were labeled as failures before they ever became reality. And so you may walk in here today and, man, I I don't know where you are. You may come in here today with the biggest dream that God has ever placed on you in your life today. You may come walk in here today and you may be in the middle of the biggest... You might come in there with the biggest... What? Oh boy, here we go again. Apparently God does this is the delu- this is another sermon in the delusions of grandeur series that uh, that seems to invade it all of purpose driven land. Biggest crisis. You may come walking here today and you may be wondering what in the heck is God up to in my life? I mean, what's going on? I mean, I just I just need some answers. I really believe that the next few minutes is going to be a I I just need some answers cuz what in the oh man 
<sighs> Just highlighting at this point. A huge encouragement and is going to bring hope into your life. Because most great accomplishments were at one time considered failures. Most great accomplishments... Let me see if I have this straight. The Christianity is all about helping you achieve great accomplishments? Huh? Before they ever happened were at one time looked at as setbacks in people's lives. But you know what I've discovered? God can take those setbacks and divinely make them set-ups in our life. And what verse is that in the Bible? Just asking the question, Jim, dude. Um, Because I don't see this as any kind of a major theme in Scripture at all. Maybe I'm reading a different Bible you are. And that's what we're going to learn today. You know, it's kind of interesting as we kind of get started here this morning. Our key verse for this series is found in John chapter 10. Let me read you that before we get to Acts 28. Kind of like an appetizer before we get to the entree. But it simply says this. Jesus says, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Here comes the abundant life verse. It's coming. Hang on. And then in verse 10, it says that the thief comes. And what does the thief come to do? He comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came to give life and I came to give that life more abundantly. And therein we have the irony of life almost spoken out of the very mouth of Jesus in the exact same breath. And as I think about Compass, I think about you guys, this past year, um, I, I, I called up one of the guys last night. I said, man, just give me the statistics again, because we know that behind every statistic, there's a story. But I was told that there were 324 people that have raised their hands in one of our services at our two campuses in 2009 to make a decision for Christ. And that 179 of them have actually gone back and recorded those decisions and got come home packets. Now, guys, that just blows me away. And it's not normal. But I wish I could gather all of them together for a little pastoral pep talk. And if I could, here's what I would tell them. I would say, one, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Number two, I'm so excited about the step that you are about, about the journey that you are about to embark on. But here's the other thing I would tell them. I have a great fear for you that you would stop at the door and you would never experience all that God has for you on the other side of the door. Isn't it true that so many of us as Christ followers, I mean, sometimes our commitment to Christ becomes checking a box, you know, filling out a card, making a decision, but we never bust through that door and experience the fullness of life that God has for us. So this morning, I want to speak to you both prophetically, and I want to speak to you both um, specifically about how would we move beyond the door? How do we experience what it is that God has in our life? How do we go beyond, man, I'm forgiven, and so I'm kind of covered and I'm good? How do we go beyond checking that box? Uh, Did you hear that? How do we go beyond the I'm forgiven and, you know... (sighs) Yeah, that gospel thing. Yeah, that's, you know... I, I don't need to hear it. I've already made a decision to become a Christ follower. How do I get beyond that stuff? How do we go beyond getting our get out of hell free card? Because see, here's what I know about you. I know that before you were ever born, God shaped you with a divine destiny. I know that before you were ever born, God created. 
you know that God shaped them with a divine destiny. Really, where is this divine destiny mentioned in the Bible? Again, I think this falls under the greater delusions of grandeur series that has invaded every single seeker-driven church out there. Aided you for something divine in his life. He has a divine design in mind. And nothing that's happened in your past or that is happening in your life right now can trip you up from realizing that. ADD moment. I just said trip you up. And man, I, I got it. The front row, man. Do you see it? Do you see him, man? Come on, let me, let me get him up here. I'm wearing my Tom's shoes today. Any of you ever heard of Tom's shoes before? Oh, man, that means you don't watch TV, baby. You, I got no sport. I got a boy right back right here. I mean, this guy looks like he might be delivering a pair of Tom's shoes back here. I like that, man. I got my pair of Tom's shoes, which means that not only am I wearing these, but there is a child in a third world country. This is really cool. I don't know if the cameras can get in on this for our video services, but check this out. This was painted by an artist. I didn't do this, but you see that baby's footprint on there? Is that cool? Can you get a close-up of that? Are they getting a close-up of it? What's it looking like? Oh, yeah, man. There we go. Cameras are magical. So I got my Tom's shoes on. That's a story I can't tell today. Um, I'll tell another time. But um, that was just an ADD moment. I've been waiting for a sunshiny day to preach in my Tom's shoes, and today is the day. So this week, back on track, we're going to talk about how God can take you from the door into the depths of everything that he has planned for you. And here's the deal. The answer might surprise you about how God works in your life. And, and, and... God works in all kinds of ways. How he works in your life is so multifaceted. But here's the deal. I I can't tell you all of those ways today. But I can tell you how God does not work. Have you ever thought about, uh, you know, um, just opening the Bible and telling us the ways God does work, you know, from his word, clearly teaching the Bible, you know, preach the word in season, out of season, why, how, what did these people do wrong to get a pastor like you who is being disobedient to what God has said you're supposed to be doing? Just asking the question. God does not work the way that you would want him to. And God does not work the way that you would probably prefer the way you would expect him to. You understand that? That's just, that's how he does not work in our lives. And so the title of the message today is The Door of Failure. And it probably could have easily have been titled The Ways and the Method and the Madness of God in Our Lives. Now, before I jump into our text, there's a misconception floating around that I just kind of want to change here and kind of deal with this morning. I think that there's a part of us about God that we feel when God changes our lives, right? It's all going to get better. You know what I'm talking about? Man, I give my life to Christ. I check the box. I make a commitment, man. It's all going to get better in my life. And it's kind of like I'm going to wake up in the morning, man. I'm, you know, And Jesus is going to wave his magic Messiah wand over my life and cure every ailment that I've got. I'm going to hit my snooze button and my Bible's just going to fall out on the floor. you know, And it's going to fall to the exact right passage that I need for that day. Psalms 37, because today was my 37th birthday. And before 7.30 a.m., God's going to tell me everything that I need to know for that day. And then I'm going to walk out to my car and the Holy Spirit is going to defrosted my windshield of all the ice on it. You know, that's if you live in the North, I guess here your, your car will be programmed to a perfect 68 degrees and 90 degree humidity and you'll be driving along. And then as you drive to work, just like God parted the Red Sea, he will park the traffic in front of you to get you there on time to get you where you want to go. And then you'll get to work and your favorite coworker will meet you there and they'll have your Do any of you folks uh, know anybody who thinks this is how God works? 
Why do I feel like this is this isn't describing anybody real? Unless, of course, you know, this is a child who thinks that if you go outside and whistle for a bird, they'll come and land on your finger and sing you a song. <sighs> Favorite cup of peppermint mocha waiting for you. It will be a venti, of course. And then you'll walk in there and there'll be another co-worker and there'll be a steaming height, pop, steaming... Popping height, hot, what do you call it? Whatever. Box, you know. A box of 12 dozen Krispy Kreme donuts that are waiting on you just to be consumed. And then about 11 o'clock, your boss will call you and he will want to take you out to lunch. And he will give you a $5,000 bonus just for being who you are. I mean, isn't that how it works when you give your life to Christ? (laughs) I didn't think so. See, that's not how it happens, isn't it? Unfortunately not. It's a process in our lives. And so if you're here today and you're just beginning the process, or if you're here today and you have been on the process for a while, maybe, maybe you've gotten stuck in the process, or maybe you are just full of anticipation, today is going to be helpful for you. All right? Will you stand with me this morning? I want to read to you this passage from Acts chapter 28, and then I want to share with you three points about how I've dealt with failure in my own life. Acts- what have we... we- <laughs> Have you noticed that the sappy music has been playing the entire time in the background? I, I, apparently, this is all just prelude. He's going to read Acts, portions of Acts chapter 28 and tell us three things that he's learned about how God deals with failure from his life. <sighs> okay. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, it says, Once that they were safe on the shore... Now, I know you just love me commenting and taking all kinds of stuff out of one little phrase, but I got to say something about this. When it says that the Apostle Paul was safe on the shore, you need to go back and read what happened before this. Because what was going on is they had been... Yeah, that's called context. Forget the fact Paul's been arrested, gone on trial, appeals to Caesar. He's under guard as they take him across the Mediterranean to Rome to uh, plead his case before Caesar. Yeah, well, we continue. Been in an intense storm for 14 days. They hadn't seen sunshine or anything like that. It would have been like the deadliest catch on the Discovery Channel. They were cruising around out there. That was what was happening. And it says that we learned that we were on the island of Malta. I'm going to explain that in just a second. Verse 2. Does this guy preach in sunglasses? You know, just I can see that happening. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. Now imagine you've been shipwrecked and your ship just crashed on an island. You have been out in the middle of the sea, tossed back and forth for 14 days. God actually spoke to Paul with her on this ship and told him that every one of these people would survive because what would happen if a shipwreck occurred, the people from Rome would go ahead and kill the prisoners because they would have been killed themselves if they lost a prisoner. Well, just as Paul prophesied, every single one of the prisoners were saved. So I can kind of see Paul. He's wet. He's drenched. He's a little ticked off at God. This has been a bad day so far. I mean, a bad couple. The text doesn't say anything whatsoever about Paul being ticked off at God. At all. In fact, if you read the text in context, you'd know that the Lord appeared to him and said that no one's going to be harmed. And he shares this message with the men, the soldiers who were there to guard him and accompany him to uh, to Rome. Nowhere does it say anything about Paul being ticked off at God. In fact, these types of hardships became par for Paul's course. 
couple of weeks for him. But look, it just gets better. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks in verse 3 and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hang. <laughs> oh, man. This is supposedly a story about failure? Hanging from his hand and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to leave. Now, can I just say a shipwreck qualifies as a bad day? Would you agree with me on that? But a shipwreck and a snake bite in the same day? I mean, come on now. Does this ever happen in history before? It happened to our boy Paul. But God has a way of turning bad luck into big breaks. Big breaks, and that's what he's doing. God has a way of turning bad luck into big breaks? That's what the story is about? You have got to be kidding me. I'm beginning to lose my cool with Mr. Joe Cool here. Doing right here. Verse 5, Paul shook off the snake into the fire and he was unashamed. He was unharmed. Verse 6, the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and they decided he was a god. It just got better for Paul. He's a god. Uh, Paul had been uh, accused of being a god before and he ended up tearing his clothes and telling people that he was not a god that people were going to sacrifice uh, animals to him and he had to stop them and then when he convinced them that he wasn't a god they turned around and stoned him how does them thinking he's a god turn out to be a good day you don't know paul verse seven near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to publius he was the chief official of that island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. And as it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him and laying hands on him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. Pray with me if you will this morning. Heavenly Father, right now over the next few minutes, I, I ask that you would take this time that we have and maximize it for the greatest potential in the people's lives that are here. Maximize it for the greatest potential? What? What kind of prayer is this? God, I ask right now that you would speak into our hearts like you've never spoken before, God. Maybe we've been in church for many years that you would speak something fresh to us today. Maybe we're just kicking tires and we're giving God one last shot. Maybe we're in the middle of a crisis. Maybe we feel like a total failure in our lives today, God. Would your Holy Spirit come in and envelop us and speak to us like you've never spoken to us before? And may your word be quick and powerful and pierce us. And God, may we have the boldness to respond to whatever it is that you ask us to do over the next few minutes. I ask these things in your strong and very powerful name. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat this morning. Get your notes out because we're going to jump right into our notes. It's interesting while you're getting your notes out. As I read this verse, do you understand that this situation in Paul's life should never have happened? Paul and Publius should never have met. Paul's whole life was kind of like this. If you read through Paul, I, I don't know about you, but some of the most enlightening parts of the Bible can be found in the back. The maps. Any of you map studiers? Come on now. The maps are great. I mean, and if you look at, if you go to the um, Are the maps inspired by the Holy Spirit? Is this going to be a, a, a lesson on reading the tea leaves of maps? 
Come on, dude. You know, yeah, come on. Yeah. Back, if you've got a study Bible and you go to the back of it and you see Paul's missionary journeys, it's not like A to B, like a straight line. It's like a zigzag, man. It is like all over the place. You're like, Paul, dude, you were, man, you, you must have had the passport going on. I mean, he was just all over the place. And it's interesting as you look. You must have had the passport going. Oh man, I, 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 this, I should have warned you, listening to this sermon could cause you to lose brain cells. At Paul's life, he ended up in Athens because a Jewish mob incited a, um, a rebellion and attacked him in Thessalonica. He ended up in Troas because a door was closed to him in Bithynia. He ended up on the island of Malta. Why? Because his ship wrecked and sank in the Mediterranean. I mean, three different places, Athens, Troas, and Malta, not part of Paul's plan. But God took a shipwreck and took a snake bite and strategically used it for something great. See, when we follow God... That's the best you got there, Um, dude. Oh, man. See, God took a shipwreck and a snake bite to strategically use it for something really cool. I mean, isn't, isn't that, wow, man, you see, you, got, you know. God may take the shipwrecks and the snake bites in our life, and he may just go ahead and create an island-wide revival out of our life. And we- Oh, man. You are kidding me, right? Who is this teenager? I'm sorry, I, I I didn't mean to insult teenagers. Who is this junior high kid? I'm sorry, I, I, I apologize. I did not mean to insult junior high kids. <sighs> we have no clue what he's up to. I think that's what sometimes happens in failure. Might I suggest to you today that some of the things that have happened in your life may have been divine detours to protect you from something? Or to get you someplace God wanted you to go. No way, dude. They may have been divine delays in your life. You weren't quite ready for that big moment on the stage that you thought. Or may- I may not have been ready for that big moment on the stage. So God's getting me ready for a big moment on the stage? Uh, what have you done with Jesus? Is he tied up and you know, hogtied in the back of your stage? I'm just curious. Maybe they were simply divine appointments, but nevertheless, what they were, were they were God's divine ways to shape greatness in your life. See, failure in our life is crazy, isn't it? I mean, God is using these to to create greatness in my life. Do you preach in front of a mirror just out of pure curiosity? Because, uh, pastor, I hate using that term for you. Uh, listen, Jim, um, you sound like one whopper of a narcissist to me. You, uh, oh, man. Failure is very polarizing. Failure either paralyzes us or energizes us. Failure in our life either stops us dead in our tracks or it propels us onto something great. Failure in our life either takes us back or moves us ahead. Failure in our life either either feels like a... Really, duh. Did you read that in a leadership book somewhere? Oh, man. And if you did, that's not appropriate material for a Christian pulpit. Set back or through God's divine interventions can be a set up. 
If you're taking notes this morning, there's three things. Oh, believe me, there's no reason to take notes. This is just banal. I want to share with you out of my own life about failure this morning. You're going to share things about your own, from your own life about failure? What? Morning that I've learned because I realized that there is nobody more qualified to talk to you about this topic than me. Okay. <laughs> okay. I am going to freak out. There's nobody more qualified to talk on the talk about this topic but me. Dude, there, I'm surprised that the people have not suffocated in the building there because your head is so big, you're sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Or really than any of our staff. That gave me great encouragement. Can I tell you, I didn't want to preach this talk this morning. I actually tried to bail on it on Thursday. Won't go into all the details. I tried to bail on this talk. I just said, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to go through what it's going to take to talk to these people about this. But three things that God has taught me. Number one, write it down this morning. Uh, By the way, did you notice how he referred to the people that showed up there to hear his sermon? I don't want to deal with these people in the morning is that you will fail. I will fail. We have to embrace that like a warm, cuddly blanket in our lives. We have to realize that failure is going to be a part of our lives. You're going to fail. Look at the person next to you and just say, man, you are going to fail. Just tell them that. But then I want you to look at them and tell them this. But I'm going to be there for you when you do. Man, that's huge. That's huge is that, that there are people that walk through that with us. I, I, I met with a lady. Um, yeah, I didn't meet with her. I was sitting out in left field working on this talk because remember I told you I didn't want to do it. And I was sitting out in left field while my boy was playing a game, three o'clock game, man, in the middle of the big heat yesterday. I found me a shade tree just like Jonah, man, a little gourd had grown over the top of my head. And I was working on this talk and a lady. You are nothing like Jonah. Oh comes up walking me i did not at least jonah you know second time around he ended up preaching to the ninevites the message god had given him and they ended up repenting you're not even preaching the word here dude not expect to see her she comes walking up to me do you know what her name was her name was rachel mays do you know what happened in her life two years ago her um, husband was alan mays a great heart doctor here in this area who has been on our stage before her son madison i um i coached in baseball they were both tragically killed on the way home from a vacation on a highway an unknown highway or not an unknown highway but an obscure highway in alabama when a, somebody crossed the line and killed them. You talk about failure. You talk about the end of it. You talk about pushing through that. Yesterday, we dedicated a field called Maze Field in the honor of them where five and six-year-old and seven and eight-year-olds will play, man, for years to come. It was a bright, shining moment. She came up. We hugged. We embraced. There were tears. She talked about how she moved on through that. I realized then, you know the kind of people I want to hang out with? The kind of people I want to hang out with are people that have failed. But they haven't become bitter about it. They become better with it. Those are the kind of people that you need in your herd, that you need in your posse. Those are the kind of people that... I don't have a posse. Oh, man. (laughs) Unbelievable. They're going to change your life. Those that have dealt with failure and have stepped through that door and didn't let them hold them back. Man, five years ago. I felt like a complete failure when it came to a church planner. Man, God was blowing and going and doing some stuff. I made some leadership mistakes. I mean, I made some unwise choices. Now, like the unwise choice of preaching about you rather than God's word. 
I'm not going to share with you all the gory details. It wasn't like a moral thing. It wasn't like something, you know, I've talked to you about that before. But man, just in my leadership journey, and, and I picked up a book. It was called Courageous Leadership by Bill Hybels, and I love the introduction to it. Bill Hybels is kind of like the granddaddy of our style of churches. He was doing, you know, cool church before cool church was cool, you know, so to say. And one of the things he wrote in there when he was um, in his 50s, he wrote a, a little bit of a biography called Courageous Leadership. And he says, I thank God for the people in my life for the last 30 years that in the middle of my boldness and decisiveness, and I'm a pretty bold and decisive leader. I want it my way and I want it done this way and man, get out of the way. But he says, I thank God for the people that for the last 30 years that have stuck with me through my boldness and decisiveness until God could chip away at me with some wisdom and sensitivity. And man, I feel like that. There was a time five years ago when I was flat on my face and I just had to come to the point and say, you know what, God, I don't care who you take away from this church. I don't care who, who comes, who goes. It is all about me and you. It is about what you are trying to do. (laughs) I don't care who you take away from this church, but it's all about me and you, God. What if God wanted to take you out of that church? Which sounds like the, the thing he really should be doing. And what you are trying to shape in this leader's life, not anybody else's life. I had felt like there were a lot more hurts at different times than there were helps in the ministry. I've watched people walk away. And yes, as a pastor, I've wanted to quit. Why? Because failure just gets up around your neck and is like a noose in our life. But God says, Jim, what I see, what you see as a setback, I see as a set up. Where does it say this in the Bible? Where do, where is this particular principle taught? To work through your life. See, I think a lot of us, this is where we get stuck spiritually, is in the midst of failure. Some of you, there are steps that God wants you to take through in your life, isn't there? There are steps that God wants you to break through those doors into the greatness that he has shaped you for. Wow. Yeah, this this isn't Compass Church. This is Narcissus, the Church of Narcissus. St. Narthus Narcissus. Hang on a second here. Working on a name here for him. St. Narcissus um Seeker Church. With the uh head priest uh Jim Carpenter. St. Narcissus Seeker Church. Yep, that's what this is. But yet, because of fear of failing, you don't want to go there. Some of you, God is asking you to start a business. Maybe the financing hasn't come through, and you're like, man, I just I can't get there. I'm afraid of failing. Some of you, God is asking you to step into another relationship in your life, isn't he? But By the way, what God is really asking these people to do is repent and receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. To um, repent of their idolatry of self. Yeah, these, oh man. But because that other relationship was bad and you've been hurt and they've done this and they've done that and you've got every excuse in the book, you're not going to take a chance again to step into a covenant marriage that is based on a relationship with God. Some of you are here today and God is asking you to put him first in your finances. You need to start biblically tithing the way he says that and just say, God, everything I... No gospel. Here's Here comes the moral imperatives without any mention of the gospel at all. The sanctification without Christ, without justification. Lovely. Just lovely.
I have is, is yours. And I'm bringing it back to you and I don't understand it. And man, I don't know it, but I know that you can do more with 90% in my life than you can, than I can do with 100%. Some of you, God's asking you to take that step. Some of you, God is asking you to start a ministry in your life. Maybe some of you, God is calling you to go into ministry. Some of you, God, some of you guys in here, God might be calling you to become a spiritual leader in your house. He said, I want you to be Ataish. You guys remember the Warrior series? Ataish. You are the man. Oh, man. God wants you to be Ataish. That means you're the man. Uh, you know, Ataish appears when uh, Nathan the prophet. Uh, talks to King David and tells the story about this lamb and and uh, you know that th- this owner had and how this horrible neighbor you know killed the lamb and David got all upset and you know, what did Nathan say? Hataish, you are the man. God has destined you for greatness in your own home. Oh, man. Okay, I'm I, I'm I'm going to lose it. <laughs> Step away from the microphone, take a deep breath. Hang on a second. Wax on. Wax off. Okay. All right. Destined you for greatness. Oh, man. This is just... Uh, Yeah, that's right. St. Narcissus Secret Church. To become that leader and to become that man. But you say, well, man, what if I don't know enough about the Bible? What if I pray wrong? What if I mess it up and do that? So we step back and we stay on the threshold of the door instead of busting through the door. Some of you, God has been calling you into being a part of something big God is doing. Right here in Northeast Georgia, you come in here, you sit on your butts every single week, but God is saying, you've got a gift, you've got a talent, you've got time, you've got something I can use. And, and, and you say, you know what, God, I'm not sure that you can use that. I'm not sure that I can be a volunteer. No, God can use that. See, we all fail. And here's what I want you to write down in your notes this morning. It's not about the why. Rather, it's about the what. It's not about the why. Rather, oh, that's deep. Wow. <laughs> rather, it's about the what. Now, I could preach an entire message on this right here. <laughs> because here's the deal. Let, let me try to extrapolate a few thoughts from this statement. But have you ever noticed that religion is more interested in dealing with the riddles than they are the reality? Well, here's what religion likes to do. They, are, they, they would rather get to get... You just said you're going to... It's all about the why, not the what, or something like that. And then you could turn around and say religion's all about dealing with the riddles rather than the reality. Isn't what you just said very riddling? Oh, man. Together and talk about the whys. Why did this happen? As opposed to looking at the what behind it. Paul, I mean, do you think anybody should have been asking why? (laughs) The Apostle Paul? Man, that was his life dream to go to Rome. And now a shipwreck, a 14-day storm. And and then on top of that, we get off the ship. I mean, I can just kind of see Paul. He's drifting out there in driftwood, baby. You know, where are we going? Get me out of here, man. We're all safe. And then he gets on the island. He starts a fire and he gets bitten by a snake. I mean, how many of us feel like there's some shipwrecks and snake bites that have happened in our lives? If I were Paul, I would be asking the same question. Why is this happening to me? And here's what's frustrating about following Jesus. Jesus isn't as interested in the whys in your life as he is in the, as he's interested in the what's. You ever notice that? I mean, Jesus is just like, he'd rather... I have no idea what you're talking about because you're not actually teaching the text at all. You've completely allegorized it into some kind of a thing where God wants greatness for me and and these are considered failures. 
Not at all. So don't you understand the Apostle Paul preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins? He went into synagogues and literally proclaimed Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel and proclaimed the forgiveness of sins in his name. And this is a man who was stoned, who was beaten, who was flogged, who... You, he was imprisoned. I mean, this guy faced death all the time. He stopped asking questions about it. This was par for his course. And the thing is, is that his great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, was bigger than all of those circumstances, and he trusted in him, never wavering in his trust, even when the circumstances by human standards looked impossible. This isn't about failure at all. Ugh. Heal a man than sit around and debate why he got that way. He'd rather love the girl that's thinking about having an abortion as opposed to sit down and berate her for why she's going to make that decision. He would rather come in and see sin to be called what it is. It's a sin and the people of God step up and start showing compassion. He'd rather just see people saved and their lives changed as opposed to sitting around and debating, well, I wonder whose sin was worse. See, religious people like to deal with the riddles, the whys. Jesus liked to deal with the what's. If you have a door in your life that feels more like a setback than a set up this morning, it's because God wants to do something great in your life, in your area. Maybe you have an area in your life that needs the transformational healing power of God to show up in that middle of that situation, or that crisis in your life. Maybe you have more questions for... This guy's another snake oil salesman. This is just, literally, he's rolling his own theology. He's rolling his own doctrine here and getting high on it. Ay, ay, ay. For God, that he's ever given you answers. Here's the one thing I know. There's nothing wrong with asking the why. But you cannot journey in the wilderness of the why. You cannot stay behind the door of the why. What does it mean to journey in the wilderness of the why? What are you talking about? The why and ever break through and get to the what behind it. See, there's a lot of question. There, there's a lot of value sometimes to be gained by asking why. I'm a why kind of guy. But I want to speak to those of you today that are, man, you're in a situation in your life. You need God to show up. You need him to show off. You need him to rescue you. You need him to heal you. You need him to turn a setback into a set up in your life. You know, but, but we like to sit back and say, God, why? Why are we going through this financial struggle, God? That doesn't make sense. I mean, God, we've been trying to biblically tithe. But look at them. They got the new car. They got the new house. God, we've been following you for our entire lives. They've got three flat screen TVs. And Listen to the mindset. We've been tithing. Don't you owe us, God? This is legalism. Uh, this is, oh, man, this is the cosmic uh, quid pro quo. If you're obedient, then God will do something for you. And they've got 175 HD channels. Their grass is greener than ours, God. Why? Why is this happening to them and it's not happening to me? Because, again, what's behind the why? I've been doing the right things. See, God would like you to move from the wasteland of the why and begin to focus on the purpose and plan that he has even in the bleakest of human situations and sometimes it happens in our... Okay, so it's a bleak human circumstance if my neighbor has a bigger television than I do and has more channels? Oh, man. ...in our own lives. Um, this has got to be the most narcissistic, narcissistic, shallow thing I've heard in a long time.
I'm, I'm, I am serious. This guy is probably a threat to public health and safety because his head literally is capable of sucking all the oxygen out of the room. I'm surprised that people are not fainting and dying from lack of, of, of oxygen, asphyxiating and dying right there on the church. Um, for some of you, and I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what shipwreck, what ailment, what snake bite you know, has, has gotten you down. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and, and let me throw out a couple of scenarios here. Maybe you're here today, and you, you are one of those couples. And, man, I meet them so often. But, man, you, you so bad. You, you want to have a child in your life, and you've tried, and you've tried, and tried to conceive, but you haven't been able to. And you sat back, and you said, God, why? Why can't we do this? Why, why can't this happen in my life? I mean, God, if we brought a child into the world, we would raise him in your will and your ways. And, man, we, we would just do, God, we would do that. And we would honor you with him. And we would thank you for that. God, why is... Notice again, if we do the right things, then, God, you owe us. They're bargaining with God, with their goodness. Oh, man, and he's not a... He's, he, ha- he has no idea what the gospel is. He has no idea that that's exactly the type of thing that sends people to hell. Is that in your life? Can I just tell you something? I don't have the answers for all those questions. The answer is simple if you actually understood what the Christian faith is. Somebody who comes to you with that mentality thinks that they can bargain with God with their goodness. They're a wretched and depraved sinner who needs to have God's law cranked up to the point where their idolatry is exposed for what it is and they see their need for the forgiveness of sins from God for their wickedness. That is an idolatrous, wicked, self-centered, narcissistic way of seeing things and basically makes it so that you think that by doing good things, God owes you something. The reason you don't have an answer is because you don't know what the gospel is, sir. But the transformation isn't going to happen in the why. The transformation is going to happen as long as we sit there and say, why? I'm not trying to be rough and tough on you or anything like that, but I'm just saying we have to get to the what. God, what is it that you're trying to do in my life? God, what is it that you want me to do? Maybe you want me to adopt a baby from India, God. I don't don't know. Maybe you're holding us off in this stage in our life so that we can accomplish something great for you. I'm not trying to make it sound easy as we walk through this. I'm just saying that there is a way to walk through some of these things. There are just some things that happens in your life, right? You don't cause them. There are some shipwrecks. There are some snake bites that happen and you don't have, you, you can't, you can't fix them. You haven't caused them. You haven't done anything to make that happen. Life just happens. Life comes at us fast. But the question is, are you going to move forward and cross that threshold of that apparent setback failure in your life, or are you going to are you going to remain back on the threshold of that and never walk through that door by understanding what it is that God wants you to do? Some of you have been severely wounded in your past, and you, you've allowed that to hold you back. You have sat back and you said, "God, why?" You have wandered in the wilderness. Why, God? Why did you let them do that to me? God, why did that happen to me when I was so young and I was so, yeah, there were so many impressions that could indelibly have been made on my mind, but God, why did that happen? But see, the question isn't why anymore in your life. It happened. Life happens. The question is, God, what is it? What would you like me to learn from this process, God? Would you like me to see a counselor and process this, God? Would you like me to have a conversation with somebody, God? What do you want to take the hell in my life and change into somebody else's miracle in their life because I have walked through this? Do you understand that? 
Guys, we live in a fallen world. Life happens to us. And you, you know, and how do you explain the why? I mean, abuse happens, neglect happens, disappointment happens, failure happens, shortcomings and flaws, humanly speaking, in other people's lives happen in our lives. And the question isn't why this morning. Can I tell you what the why is? The why is because sin entered into the world when Adam walked through that door and made that choice. That is the why behind that. And we don't we don't have to sit here and have a big why conversation about that because it infects it, it impacts all the rest of us. But the fact of the matter is that sin is here in our life. It's not going anywhere. That's the why. But let's move on into the what now. God, yeah, I was abandoned. God, yes, I was mistreated. God, yes, I was abused. God, yes, that business failed in my life. God, yes, that relationship failed. So God, what is it? What is it that you want to teach me? What is it that you want to grow in me? What is it that you want to do in within my life with what I've been through? That's good stuff, guys. Uh, no, it's not. It's not good stuff at all because you're rolling your own stuff here. You grow that one in your backyard there, dude? I know some of you are sitting here like a deer in the headlights, man. Yeah, because what you're saying doesn't make any biblical sense at all. You're just making stuff up out of your big head. But that's good stuff. Can, can I tell you why? I know. <laughs> because before I ever have to preach these sermons to you, man... God preaches them to me. I've I've got to live it out. See, I'm a why man. Number one, how I've dealt with failure and understood is I I learned everybody fails. We all do that. I will fail. But here's the second thing I want you to write down this morning. This will give you great hope and encouragement. You can overcome. God's also taught me that. See, I've been learning about myself and discovering about God. You've been learning about yourself. That doesn't surprise me at all. And you've been discovering about God. Well, it just so happens your God happens to be the thing that you've been discovering yourself. See, I I hesitate to talk to the person that says, well, yeah, I learned that. Because I don't think it's a learned thing. I think that we're in the process of learning God, God is, man, God is so deep and there are so many things that he wants to teach me in my life. And I am learning about how to deal with myself and I am discovering things about God I can overcome. See, when things that happen in your life that are discomforting, they kind of rattle the cage, so to say, don't they? They just kind of get in your face. They kind of take that compass needle and make it spin crazily in our lives, man. Our gyroscope kind of inside is off. But we need to realize that the Bible, interestingly enough, says that God rains down on the just as well as the unjust. And I love this verse, Romans eight twenty eight. He does say that all things work together for good to those that love God. It's not that as Christ followers were immune. It's uh, no, see, all things work together for good for those who love God. But the thing is, is that no one who doesn't have faith, no one who, who, no one who hasn't repented and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, nobody outside of that loves God. You don't understand where where faith plays into this at all and where the gospel rubber hits the road at all. You do not understand the gospel, sir. Part of the shaping process of greatness in our life. God was great. The what? The shaping process of greatness in our life? Hang on a second here. I was wrong. Yeah, this isn't St. Narcissus. Seeker Church. I, I, I apologize for the error and I repent. Hang on a second. This is Lucifer's, St. Lucifer, 
uh, seeker church. Just in the process that I went through several years ago as a leader to give me two different verses. I've shared these verses and I would never have found these verses if I wouldn't have gone through some failures and I wouldn't have felt like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have found these verses. Oh, wow. You know, I, how about if you read your Bible, you might find a whole bunch of verses. There's a whole lot of them. If you just read the book, you might find one or two of them along the way. Oh. I wanted to quit and I wouldn't have been flat on the mat. And the only person that could have picked me up was God. These are verses I've shared probably with many, with dozens of you. I, I mean, in the last five years, I mean, every time, I mean, it's just, over. why don't you instead, oh man, open the Bible and share all the different verses that are already there, dude. Unbelievable. Every time, I mean, it's just over and over again, but let me share them with you this morning. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. And I'm going a little bit out of order. You're going to have to go down to point three and find these. I think they're at the end of your notes, so you may have to turn them over there. But Hebrews 10, verses 35 and 36. Look at this verse and... And oh, man, our guys are right on top of it back there. Thank you, guys, because I know I just jumped out of order on you. But check out this verse. The apostle, I think the apostle Paul is the writer of Hebrews. It doesn't really say who wrote that. But he says, do not cast away what? Do not cast away what? In the middle of failure, do not cast away what? In the middle of those crazy situations, do not cast away what? In the middle of... That verse does not say the things that you are adding into it. Shipwrecks and snake bites, do not cast away what? Why? Because it has great reward. And he goes on and he says, for you have need of endurance. Yeah, baby. You have need of endurance. You're going to hit the wall sometimes in your life. You have need of endurance. But after, look at this, after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And then there's this verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Man, I, I love this passage. And I have read this passage, man. I grew up in a Christian school, went to church, been taught this. And, you know, in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care on God because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil's like a roar, roaring lion and he is roaming about, roar, roaming around looking for somebody to pounce on. Verse Peter 5 9. Man, don't be surprised because your Christian brothers and sisters around the world have gone through the same thing. I never saw verse 10. Check this out. After you have suffered a little while, what will he do? Restore. What else will he do? Support. What else will he do? Strengthen. What else will he do? They showed a firm. Man, I had to have a kid yell that out to me, adults, this morning to guys. Unbelievable, man. I'm going to get you talking back to me one way or the other. He will restore. He will support. He will strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. You know what God taught me? Because I asked for a couple of... Oh, boy. First uh, Peter 5. Humble yourselves. Uh, verse 6, by the way. Remember, there's three important rules of biblical interpretation. Context. Context and context. So at the end of his letter... Uh, where he talks about the gospel, sound doctrine, all that kind of stuff. Uh, first, uh, first Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Who's going to exalt you? God is at the proper time. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be all dominion forever. Amen.
Is uh, Peter there promising uh, earthly restoration? Uh, no, he's not. Of years, I said, God, how long is a little while? How long do I have to suffer? <laughs> Your whole life. And then I found the verse that one day with God's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And that didn't help anything. You know what happened? God said, it's your choice. Really? Where did God say that it's your choice? When did you ascend to heaven and, you know, have a chat with God? When you're willing to let go and let me, then we can begin the healing. Let go and let God. I've seen that bumper sticker before. That's not in the Bible either. Oh, man. Healing process. We can move from the setback to the setup. First Peter 5, verse 10. Um, write this down. Here's something else I'm learning. I'll put this in your notes. Sometimes the worst things that happen to us can actually be the best things that happen to us. God has a way of taking that crazy stuff and using it as a foundation in our lives to prepare us for exactly what he wants. I want to say something to our 20-somethings. We have a lot of 20-somethings that come to this church, man. And I'm so thankful and grateful for you. You guys bring energy to me, man. I love it. I know. I, and what's interesting to me is that new chapters in our life, especially in the 20-somethings, they begin with orientation, don't they? You go to school and you get an orientation. You go get a new job and you get an orientation. Well, can I tell you something? New chapters in the life of a child of God begin with disorientation. It's usually not orientation. It's disorientation. Some oh, unbelievable. Did you, uh, did you graduate from the King and the Duke uh, Seminary? Just, you know, think Huck Finn. Sometimes God will disorient you in your life in order to reorient you. I don't like it. You know, I don't like it any more than you do. But here's the thing. I know for sure that I would not have been reoriented to who I am if it wouldn't have been for the shipwreck that I went through in my own personal leadership. Yeah, let's talk about your snake bites, too. Notice he's holding, exalting himself up as the perfect example of the person who's, you know, he's the best expert on all of this. Because no, no one more qualified to preach on this than him because he's making all this up journey. And some of you are 20-somethings and you are full of disorientation in this third decade of your life, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. It's kind of like the quarter life crisis, right? 25 years old. I mean, you are being reoriented to new jobs, to new um, relationships, occupational, even geographical disorientation in your life. You know, who should I marry? What, what, what should I believe? Where should I live? What should I do with the rest of my life? Can I just tell you this and give you some encouragement and hope? God is far more interested about your future than you are. God is far more interested about taking you middle school, high school, 20-something college student where he wants you to go than you are interested in getting where he wants you to go. Write this down. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It matters what happens in you. I want you to meet somebody. Um, I want to hang out with him for just a second because I want you to hear his story. Some of you know him. And um, he's attended our church now for, I guess, probably almost six years. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly about this leader's life. He's a 20-something. He's a Christ follower. He loves Jesus. He's a man of God. He and I have had the privilege and the honor of walking through some of each other's failures together. He currently um, works a part-time job in physical therapy, and the job that's really on his heart, what his business, his business card says physical therapy, but what his heart says is FCA. He's part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Will you give it up for our very own Lee Patterson? Come on up here, Lee. We're going to skip the Lee Patterson part. 
God is more interested in who you are becoming than where you are going in your life. God's going to get you where he wants to go. Do you understand that? That's his business. It's not your business. He's got a plan. He's got a divine plan. He's got a divine design for you. But who you are becoming in the process, the greatness that he is shaping in your life is much more important than where you are going. I know that Abraham Lincoln's name flashed up on the screen. I'm blown away by his life and his story. In a 50-year period, I mean, it goes on and on and on. He was born into poverty. I don't know. This would be Saint Abraham Lincoln? Is his story in the Bible? Just, you know, asking the question. I don't know if you know that about him. He was raised in a long cabin. His mom died at an early age. Um, his fiance died on him. He had a son that died on him. He ran for office five different times and was defeated and never made it. When he was engaged to be married, his fiance, his sweetheart died. It almost broke him in two. When he sought the vice, part, the vice presidential nomination for the first time after four failed political tries, he only received 100 votes. I think I would have gotten the message, you are not destined for this. But in 1860, he was elected as the president of the United States. And you know, when I look back at him, if you read his biographies, there's some of the most amazing things to read. I, you know, as, as, as being one of the most respected and revered men in our country, man, I, I love reading those type of stories. But you know what? I wouldn't want to be like him. I mean, he was one of the most tortured souls of leadership in our country that I've ever read. Martin Luther King said this. He says, what does not destroy me makes me stronger. And one of the biographers Dale Carnegie said this about Abraham Lincoln. Let me just read it. He says he lost 80, 40 pounds while he was in office. He hardly slept. And as the years passed, his laughter had grown less frequent. The furrows in his face had deepened. His shoulders had stooped. His cheeks had sunken. And he had suffered from chronic indigestions. His legs were always cold. He could hardly sleep. And he wrote habitually on his face uh, um, the look of anguish. And I look at somebody like that. I say, what was it that kept him going? What allows people to bust through those doors of failure? What allows them not to stand on that threshold and to bust through that in their life? Well, could it be, well, it's not, this isn't the answer. Uh, let's see. Um, the Christian answer we're looking for is his faith in Christ and the future glory and return of Jesus Christ. Uh, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior who's overcome sin, death, and the devil, you know, things like that. Can't wait to hear the answer. How is it that God shapes greatness? And you know what I realized? He had a sense of destiny in his life. So that's what got him through, his sense of destiny. Not, it wasn't actually God. It was um, a sense of destiny. Which is probably the reason why Abraham Lincoln is not Saint Abraham Lincoln and his story is not in the Bible. He, he knew that God had designed him for something great. He knew that the next days could be his best days. And they weren't. He was assassinated. Are you familiar with uh, Abraham Lincoln's story? His next days were the no days. He, he's dead. He was murdered. And if you hang around Compass very long, you know that's what I believe about you. If you've ever been a guest here and you've gotten that guest packet when you've walked in and you've read that note in there, man, that is a note from the bottom of my heart. I don't care what has happened. A note from the bottom of your heart. They're walking into a church and you're giving them a note from the bottom of your heart rather than the bottom of God's heart? Where God's heart is to call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ because he actually hung naked and bleeding on a cross for their sins? Oh, man.
happened in your life from the point that you walked into these doors in this church at this moment in time. I believe that God divinely orchestrated that to come in here, whether it was a mailer, whether it was a drive-by, whether it was a friend, or whether it was just he or she was cute. I believe that God divinely orchestrated that and brought you in here because the best days of your life can be ahead of you. No ifs, ands, or buts about it in your life. The last thing I want you to know that I've learned about failure. Because the best days of your life can be ahead of you. Dude, they're going to die someday. You're going to tell them about Christ and the forgiveness of sins? Number one, that we all fail. Number two is that you can overcome it. But number three, God has a plan in the middle of your failure. God has a plan in the middle of your failure. And I'm so thankful for that. I love this quote from Abraham Lincoln that was written. It's in your- love this quote. It's just like a Bible verse, you know. In your notes this morning, it says, I now leave. And this is, this is when he accepted the presidency of the United States. This is before his hometown crowd. And I cannot put, you know, in 150 years ago, I can't surmise what was going on in somebody's leader. But check this in, in, in a leader's mind. But look at this. He tells his people, I now leave going to be the president of the United States, not knowing when or ever I may return. You understand he never returned. You guys got that part, right? <laughs> Remember that story? Yeah, because his best days apparently weren't ahead of him. With a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. But look at this. Without the assistance of the divine being who attended him, he was talking about God Almighty, I cannot succeed. And then will you say this next phrase with me this morning? With that assistance, I cannot fail. And that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. Without God's assistance... I don't care what you try. You cannot succeed. You may think and may feel like you succeed. How do you explain Stalin's success? He was an atheist. Unbelievable. I just, um, wow. But I'm telling you, in the end, you don't succeed. With God's assistance, we cannot fail. That's why I love going in and meeting with Coach Dave Van Hallinger, the strength and conditioning coach for UGA. He's put up seven rules since they got here. What was it, eight, nine, ten years ago, whenever he and Coach Ricks got here. And the seventh rule is this. And he always, and when he took me through them for the first time about five, six years ago, I was shooting a video interview with him. He said, Jim, this one's optional. And you know what number seven is? Ask for God's help. Now, he says for some of those guys, when they do wrong, and I've got them out there at 5 a.m., and they run up and down Sanford Stadium for the 10th time, and now they're doing their 20th, 100-yard dash, and they're puking their guts out. He says sometimes they just, they're not an option or not, they just cry out for God's help. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> they just cry out for God's help. Sometimes it's not. <sighs> Any of you have a problem with a pastor? using God's name in vain like that in a sermon. I, maybe I'm just being too old school here. Not optional in our life, but ask for God's help. God always has a plan and a story. He told me this story about one of the quarterbacks. He now lives in Athens, Georgia. He's an NFL quarterback. So you may know his story. He played for him at Florida State. Played for Bobby Bowden. Played for Coach Richt. Played for Coach Van Hallinger. And it was going into his senior year. And he was benched for another player who eventually became a Heisman Trophy candidate. Um, and I, I think he ended up winning the Heisman Trophy. And he was benched. And, he, and Coach Van says, I remember this guy came walking to my office with tears in his eyes and says, Coach, my career is over. 
That's like a seven-digit decision. You know what I mean? Uh, just ask Matthew Stafford. If you get benched in college, man, that's like huge numbers that you lose out. And he says, God, I don't know where I'm going to go. And Coach Van Hellinger says, all that I know to look at that young man and say is, you know what, young man? Because he knew that he had Christ inside of him. He says, God has a plan for your life. Do you know who benched him? The offensive coordinator. Do you know who the offensive coordinator was for Florida State then? Mark Richt. Do you know what happened in the next four years of this guy's life? He graduated from Florida State. He got drafted. He went on to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He married Mark Rick's sister. (laughs) And he led the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to a Super Bowl victory. In the middle of that, I'm telling the midst of failure, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of those moments, in the midst of shipwrecks and snake bites, God has a plan for our lives. God has a plan for your life. I want to ask Pat to come back out here. I'm going to close with this story and we'll wrap this up today. As he's coming back out, let me tell you something about Paul. I don't have time to go into it. It's in my notes. But do you know how Paul got to Malta? It was called the wind factor. I want you to go back this week and read in Acts chapter 27 and Acts chapter... It's called the what? The wind factor? Oh, man. 14 days in a storm. He got to multiply the wind factor. 28. Four different times it says the wind took Paul. Do you know that... The wind factor. Oh, man. It's wind. Oh, in John chapter 3, Jesus likened the wind to how the Spirit of God moves in a Christ follower's life. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. God will take you where he wants you to go. And, and, and here's a question I've got for you. What stories do you think Paul, when he sat around the campfire, talked about? His encounter with the risen Christ. He kept preaching Christ. Christ and him crucified for our sins. The dead and risen Savior. That's the, oh, Paul was like a one-trick pony, man. He had one message. Christ, Christ, Christ. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You think Paul was sitting around going, man, you know, I'm so glad that God used that snake bite as a setup rather than, you know. You think he just talked about the ones that weren't fun or weren't exciting? Or do you think he talked about the shipwreck and the snake bite story? Man, you got one? Check out what happened here. But here's how God used it. Here's the story I want to share with you this morning. It was um, happened in a church. In- uh, Paul was not a narcissist like you are. In Philadelphia, the Philadelphia church in Stockholm, Sweden in 1921. They sent a couple of missionaries. Their names were Mr. and Mrs. Flew to the Congo. It's considered modern day Zaire now. And they took their one-year-old son, and their project was to set up a missionary compound there in the midst of the jungle. They had to, like, use machetes to get back there. There's another couple that was sent within. The name of that couple was the Erickson family. Um, the truth is, is that um, they preached the gospel for probably at least a year and, and had no converts. And the truth is, is that at that point in time, they believed in the medicine men. They believed in witch doctors. They believed in witchcraft. That, that was who their gods were and who they looked to. But there was one five-year-old boy that always came to the back door of the Flood's house. And Sevilla Flood, who was the mom, he would come to sell chickens. And every time that he came to sell chickens, she, in his life, would... Cue sappy music. Must be getting close to the end of the sermon and prayer time. ...would share about the love of Christ with him. Well, fast forward the clock a little bit. Shortly after, she gave birth to her second child named Aggie. And shortly after that, 17 days later, Sviaflu died. Died there in the mission field. 
Her husband was heartbroken, didn't know what to do, got mad. And he basically gave Aggie to the Ericsons to raise. And he took his son and he went back to the United States and he never returned. Well, the Ericsons raised Aggie. And um, when she was three years old, Mrs. Erickson died. Mr. Erickson was so heartbroken emotionally and spiritually that um, he gave Aggie to a couple of American missionary by the name of um, Arthur and Anna Berg. Uh, do you think for a second that these missionaries that you're telling their story shared the, sto- the, the, the incredible gospel of God has greatness for you with these people in Zaire? Or did they share the love of God and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and called them to repent of their false religion and to receive the forgiveness of sins from the one true God? What do you think the message was? I, I know where my bets lie. And three days later, Mr. Erickson died. It was later to find out that the natives had actually poisoned both of them. The Bergs returned to America and they pastored a church in South Dakota. Aggie was raised um, in that church, and she went on to go to school in a, in a Bible college um, called Central Bible College, and she met a guy named D.V. Hurst there. D.V. Hurst later on went on to become the president of Northwestern Bible College, if you're familiar with that story. But here's where the story gets interesting. If you'll fast forward the clock, like 30 years with me, D.V. Hurst and Aggie Hurst were sitting in a conference um, in London, England, and it was the International Conference for the Church of the Pentecostals. And the guy that got up to speak, his name was um, Rugi Gatti. Nagatora. Don't have to repeat that or spell it. But he was the supervisor of the church, for, um, the Pentecostal church in Zaire. And he got up and he stood and he talked about how in Zaire there were um, hundreds of churches that had been planted and there were over 110,000 recorded baptisms that had taken place. He informed them of all that God was doing. And, and um, Aggie sat there at that point in time and did a little bit of mental calculation. And afterwards she went up and she spoke to this guy through an interpreter. And she asked him, do you know of the village that I would, that I would, you know, that I grew up in there? And he says, yeah, he says, I know that village. He says, I grew up in that village. And he said, matter of fact, he says, I used to go to the back door of Sevilla Flood's house and I used to sell her chickens. And I don't know if she had any converts to the cause of Christ in that whole village because one day I know that I prayed with her and I asked Christ to come into my heart and this is where God had led me. And he says, I always had wondered what had happened to her. I knew what happened to her dad. They left and all that. But I always had wondered what happened to, the, to, to, to Aggie. And Aggie, through the interpreter, said, I'm Aggie. And he uncontrollably sobbing with tears in his eyes says, just a few months ago before I left to come over here for this tour, I put flowers on your mama's grave. And I prayed there. And I thanked her for her family and her daughter for allowing her mom to die so that I could hear the gospel. Guys, you don't ever know what shipwreck and what snake bite God wants to take you on. When we hit that door of faith, uh, notice that uh, he heard the gospel. Why don't you preach it, uh, Jim? Why don't you preach it to us? Tell us what the gospel is. The gospel of greatness? Failure, it's an either-or choice in our life. We can either see it as a setback or we can see it as a setup. We can either hide behind all the baggage of our failures or we can bolt through that door. We can either sit back at that moment in time in our lives and we can either exaggerate all the obstacles or we can engage the enemy head on and say, God's got a plan for my life. 
Will you pray with me this morning? God, I ask. All right, we're done. Done, done, done. Unbelievable. That's not Christianity, what you just heard. I don't know what that was. The delusions of grandeur from St. Lucifer's uh, first narcissistic church of the seeker uh, there in Athens, Georgia. Man, unbelievable. The gospel is so simple, and yet the church is so off track. The good news of the gospel is this incredible story of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. That's right, when we get to Christmas time, that is God in human flesh nursing at the breast of Mary, born in a humble place. In a manger, put in a manger, worshipped by angels and shepherds. And what was he doing there? This was God coming to earth to rescue us, to redeem us, to set us free from the consequences of our sin by taking those consequences upon himself and canceling the debt that we had earned because of our sin propitiating God's wrath and justice against our sin and rising victorious from the, from the grave three days after he was crucified under, under Pontius Pilate for you. Does God promise you greatness here on this earth? Does he have some great destiny for your life? I don't know. Scripture doesn't promise that. Not in the terms that Jim preached. The greatness that God has for your life. See, God likens greatness way differently than we do. We consider greatness to be something like becoming president of the United States or becoming president of a corporation, a big multinational, or being a, 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 an all-star athlete. Those are all... That's all greatness according to the standards of the world. But God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, says that the greatest among you will be your servant. It'll be the one who doesn't, for all intents and purposes by the world's standard, is the least among you. In God's kingdom, the least is the greatest, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. We're called to proclaim a good news message to great and humble, poor and rich, slave or free. Because our worldly circumstances have nothing to bear on this incredible good news that Christ died for our sins and is offering us a full and complete pardon. Jesus Christ is the lifter of our heads, not us. And there will be a day when he is exalted and he will call you by name into his great and glorious and eternal kingdom. A kingdom that you cannot earn by your good works or your deeds. It can only be achieved through a narrow path. A narrow path that is Christ. Christ. 
that comes about through repentance, contrition, and the forgiveness of sins won by Him on the cross. This other stuff, it's not Christianity. It's the kind of heady, ego-inflating, satanic message that will send people to hell. Our prayers go out to Jim Carpenter and the people of Compass Church in Athens, Georgia, that God would grant them repentance and kick this guy out, throw his butt out on the street where it belongs. The set man has no business preaching from a Christian pulpit. He's not bringing God's word. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. In fact, by partnering with us, not only do you benefit by having Fighting for the Faith continue uh, in its work, but also the message of Fighting for the Faith and the work that we're do that we are doing is reaching other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and bi- sound biblical doctrine and discernment. Through this ministry, people's lives are being changed, sometimes for the worst. But ultimately, they're hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you partner with us and uh, help to make this program possible for other people as well as yourself? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Man, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to go jogging or something. And I'm even overweight. That may not be advisable. Got to get that one out of my system. <laughs> if you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for you, for your sins. Amen. <laughs>